Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Exodus chapter 2. In Exodus chapter 1, we saw that the people of Israel were being blessed in the land of Egypt. They were growing and multiplying so much so that they began to be perceived as a significant threat. The Egyptians sought to deal with this threat by subjecting the Hebrews to harsh and ruthless labor. They thought that if the men had to travel a great distance to various construction projects, there would be a decrease in spirit and a decrease in fertility. If the men weren't home, then in theory, there ought to have been fewer pregnancies. And if spirits were in decline, there also ought to be fewer pregnancies. That was the plan, but it didn't work. Exodus 1 verse 12 says, But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. Closed quote. So the Egyptians decided to up the ante. They enacted a form of targeted genocide. But they tried to do it through the agency of the midwives who courageously refused to participate. So at the end of chapter 1, Pharaoh issues a blanket edict to all Egyptians generally that every male child born to a Hebrew woman was to be cast alive into the Nile. That was the desperate situation that the Israelites found themselves in at the end of chapter 1. We pick up the story now at verse 1 of chapter 2. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. Now let's just pause here quickly and notice what is said about this child. We notice, first of all, that he is a full-blooded Levite. He is from the priestly tribe, or what will become the priestly tribe. We notice, second of all, that he is described in the ESV as a fine child. The New King James Version describes him as a beautiful child. The Hebrew expression that is used is the same one used back in the creation story to refer to God's assessment of Adam and Eve. Thus, the JPS Torah commentary says here, this parallel suggests that the birth of Moses is intended to be understood as the dawn of a new creative era, closed quote. There was definitely something about the appearance of Moses that signaled the divine favor. So, for example, Stephen, in his sermon in Acts 7, when he was summarizing the history of Israel, says, At this time Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight, Acts 7, verse 20. Similarly, the book of Hebrews, in chapter 11, says, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents, because they saw that the child was beautiful, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Close quote, Hebrews 11, 23. So there was something about Moses, even as a baby, that clearly indicated that the favor of the Lord was upon him. And his parents, therefore, acted in faith to protect this child that they believed had been sent by Almighty God. 
Verse 3. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. Now we need to pause again quickly here because there is another linguistic connection to the foundational narratives in the book of Genesis. The baby Moses here is placed in a basket. The actual Hebrew word is teva, which is normally translated as ark, as in Noah's ark. So Moses is like a new Adam and Moses is like a new Noah. This is a new creative and redemptive work of the Lord. Moses heralds a new era, and Moses effects a great salvation. That's what we're being told here. So Moses' mother made an ark out of a basket, and she covered it in bitumen and pitch, and she anchored it out in the reeds of the Nile. Now remember, Pharaoh had just authorized his people to throw any Hebrew baby boys that they found out into the Nile River. So Jochebed, Moses' mother, had to come up with a plan. And the plan was to put baby Moses in a basket and to wedge the basket or anchor the basket in some way into these reeds so that she could go out and feed him and change him, but leave him otherwise out of sight and out of danger should any Egyptian wander by. Verse 4, And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. So Miriam was on watch duty. She was keeping an eye out. She was probably between 8 and 11 years old at the time. Verse 5. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses, because, she said, I drew him out of the water. Now, it is not entirely clear whether this encounter was on purpose, from Jochebed's perspective, or accidental, meaning, did the basket somehow come unstuck from the reeds and drift down to where Pharaoh's daughter was bathing, or was it put there on purpose because of something that Moses' mother knew about this daughter of Pharaoh. Of course, we can't know because we aren't told. What we are told is that this daughter of Pharaoh had some gumption. She defied the order to throw Hebrew baby boys into the Nile and instead adopted this Hebrew boy for her very own. Miriam, who was watching on, volunteers to locate a wet nurse who, of course, would be Moses' own mother. So Pharaoh's daughter agrees to pay for this wet nurse. So Miriam goes and brings her to Pharaoh's daughter. Thus, Moses' mother now had legal cover to continue to nurse and raise up her son, all 
paid for out of Pharaoh's purse. Now, in that culture, children weren't fully weaned until they were three to four years old. So during this time, Moses would have been mostly in the custody of his biological mother, though no doubt being told that at some point he would need to leave and live with his adopted mother. Pharaoh's daughter gives him the name Moses because she drew him out of the water. This actually was not an uncommon name at that time. We have historical records of two different Egyptian officials named Moses from the same time period. It is a simple play on words. The name itself means to be born, but it also sounds like the word for draw out. So it is a name with a double meaning. This is the child who was born by being drawn out of the River Nile. Of course, the Bible reader senses a third nuance to the name because this is the child by whom God will draw out and give birth to a people for himself. Verse 11. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now, here with this narrative, we have skipped forward about 35 years in the timeline of the story, which, of course, was a very common way of telling a story like this. We think of the Gospels, for example. In Matthew and Luke, we get a brief birth narrative, but then we skip forward to when Jesus was around 30 years old. So it is here. This story introduces us to Moses' essential character. Even though he was raised in Pharaoh's court, he continues to identify with the plight of his own people. He has the personality of a rescuer, but he has yet to learn that God's work must be done God's way. So his first effort at being a redeemer was a colossal failure. Moses must learn how to be the shepherd of God's people. So he goes on something of his own personal exodus. He flees Egypt and ends up sitting by a well in the land of Midian, what today we would refer to as the Sinai Peninsula and eastward. Verse 16. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Reuel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. 
From this brief narrative, we are again reminded of Moses' essential character. He is a rescuer at heart. He was obviously a man of action and of courage. He stood up and saved them. That's who Moses is. And much of that personality will be retained. God doesn't obliterate our personality, but he does prune, shape, and refine our personality. And God will be doing that with Moses over the next 40 years. Moses thinks that he has failed his way out of God's purposes. He believes that he is now a permanent exile. He settles in to the family of Reuel, who is elsewhere called Jethro, and he names his son a child of wandering. But God is not done with this man. Verse 23, During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Now, of course, to say that God remembered and that he saw and knew is, of course, to make use of accommodated language. God does not forget anything, nor does he ever know any more or less about anything. Nevertheless, this language is used to help us understand something important about the character of God and what it means to be in covenant relationship with such a God. J. Alec Machir puts it marvelously as only he could do. He says, Here is God represented as though he woke up one morning, the phone rang, and when he lifted the receiver, he heard the voice of his people in Egypt saying, We're in such a pickle. And the Lord said to himself, by George, I'd quite forgotten about them. Of course, it did not happen like that. But God is represented as though his elbow needed jogging. And our prayer did the trick. Thus we learn what a marvelous and potent thing his people's prayer is. Close quote. Well, I think that is absolutely fabulous and absolutely correct. Prayer is the slender nerve that moves the mighty hand of God. The Lord has his own sense of timing, but he is never indifferent to the prayers of his covenant people. He hears, he cares, and he comes. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the End of the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population, with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at End of the Word, I only promote ministries that I have firsthand on-the-ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. There are giving options there under the Give tab for both Canadian and American listeners. International listeners are welcome to give as well, though their gifts may not qualify for charitable receipts in their nation. 
Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 